So it's a lot easier to start with a blank slate and go, right, here's our ambition for the place. It's going to have no cars, it's going to have public transit, it's going to be walkable, it's going to have fabulous streets, lots of great places, Um, it's going to have district heating, cooling, renewable energy, we don't have to work with the mess that was there before, we don't have to convert, we don't have to retrofit, we'll just get it right from the starting point and go from there. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Daniel Butler. Today, we'll be talking about new cities. And I mean new. Right now, all around the globe, scores of new cities are being built from scratch, rising out of empty lots, or a desert, or a newly created island. These new constructions seem like the perfect chance to start again to get it right. But are we making the most of the opportunity? Are we making things worse, not better? I would say now we're in the middle of new city fever, where at least 120 new cities are being constructed mainly across the Global South. That's Dr Sarah Moser. She's the director of the Urban Studies Program in the Geography Department of McGill University, and she knows a lot about new cities. But before we go any further, a little bit of housekeeping. What defines a new city? Well, I think new city has a definitional problem uh, at its core. What is a new city? That is a really good question. Uh, they're trying to build not just a city extension or expand an existing city uh, or even create kind of a suburb or uh, a satellite city necessarily. They're, they're really aspiring to create an independent new city. These aspirations for independence can sometimes go beyond the city itself to the very heart of a country's identity. Who they are, who they once were... And who they want to become can all drive the construction of a new city. Part of it is pride, national pride. Uh, Part of it is to differentiate themselves from their colonial uh, oppressor, to start scratch rather than use the city that was, you know, developed under the colonial regime. They're also seen as a way to leapfrog economies from agriculture or manufacturing into a digital age. Uh, And so a lot of these cities are conceptualized as being, you know, smart and uh, venues for fostering the knowledge economy. New city, new identity. Many oil-producing nations are using new cities as an opportunity to reinvent their economies. It's a chance to start afresh, to renew and rebrand, especially in one regard, as Sarah found out. Yeah, uh, so I had a student go to a hundred websites of new cities uh, and cut and paste all of the text from the front page and put it into a, a word cloud generator. And so some of the top words that kept coming up and, and showed up the largest are eco city, green city, smart city. So new cities tend to 
you know, engage this really optimistic rhetoric. Uh, and it really requires researchers like myself comparing the rhetoric with what's actually being built. And I'm finding there's a really big gap. Some of them are about exhibiting really great sustainability credentials. Karen Wilmot is a research principal and core member at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. She's also recognised the desire of countries to brand their new projects sustainable. So one of the most famous ones is Mazda in the United Arab Emirates, and it came out with a huge amount of fanfare about how fantastic it was going to be. It was as a lot of these cities are, car-free. That's the you know, sort of step one in the sustainability agenda. Mazda was intended to have people drive to the outskirts of the city and then transfer to personal vehicles that are autonomous that run around in tunnels underneath the main city and deliver you up to wherever you want to go. And uh, it, you know, university city and an economic hub and thriving. And in the middle of the desert, it was going to reference um more Indigenous architecture. And so it had all of this promise, but the execution seems to lack. Sarah says there's a really simple reason these cities are decked out in the rhetoric of sustainability, and it's not out of concern for the environment. I think sustainability sells right now. It's kind of a hot buzzword uh, to attract investment, in some cases, it attracts attention from the UN and they get, you know, positive publicity from UN agencies like UN Habitat. Uh, it's trendy for investors and, you know, potential residents of cities who want uh, cleaner options, less polluted options for their families to live in. So a lot of the cities that are being marketed to uh, Chinese nationals particularly are advertising their green credential. And to basically make a sharp contrast between incredibly polluted Chinese cities and these new city options. So there's money, there's money at stake in this green rhetoric. Is it fair to say that there's a degree of greenwashing going on? Yes, mm. a lot of greenwashing happening. <laughs> I think the concept of green and eco is so ambiguous that it's almost meaningless. Uh, it really depends on who you talk to, what, what is actually green. Type Green New City into a search engine. One of the first hits you get is Forest City. Forest City is being built on four artificial islands on Malaysia's southern tip, in sight of Singapore. With a price tag of $100 billion, Forest City is being built by China's largest construction company. And it is green, literally. There's greenery as far as the eye can see, covering skyscrapers. Trees line the streets and large parks are dotted throughout the city. Well, in the display model, that is. Forest City is green in the sense that there are plants everywhere and trees everywhere. Um, when you get closer, you can see a lot of the plants are made out of plastic. Yes, plastic. Uh, and so it gives this very lush appearance and it looks great on Instagram and on the website. Um, but, you know, it doesn't foster biodiversity. So if that's the definition of green is being creating a rich ecosystem for, for flora, local flora and fauna, this is not not happening at all. Karen says this clash between city and environment isn't an isolated one. 
Which is one of the problems with the new cities. If they're in, if they're greenfields, you know, fresh land, then what's the habitat or what's the ecosystem that was there and why hadn't it been built on before? whole new city needs totally fresh land and it's either a sensitive habitat or it's got high ecological value or it's poor quality or it's marshlands or perhaps it's a new um, island. Forest City is a really good example of Karen's point. It's an archipelago of artificial islands being built on the largest seagrass field in all of Malaysia. So, I mean, it's destroying the seagrass, which hosts all sorts of, you know, marine animals and which are important for the fisheries, uh, fishery industry. Uh, and so when you think about the types of species that they're actually planting and what this means for biodiversity, it's also, you know, easy to criticize because they're planting a lot of coconut trees. This doesn't provide habitat for, you know, local birds and animals and whatnot. And there, there's really no mangrove that's being planted. And in fact, mangrove is being destroyed extremely rapidly in that area. Uh, and so, you know, the fish and the crocodiles and the, the birds and prawns and all the animals that require a healthy mangrove uh, are, are being displaced and, uh, you know, left homeless because of projects like Forest City. So it's a lot of greenwashing on an unprecedented scale. Another really high-profile one was Dong Tang. Again, a really high-quality people involved with the design and promoting it. Lots of, of ambition for it, and nothing's happened. No, not a sod turned. So that's you know, a good 10 years or so sitting around being talked about. Lots of pretty images, nothing happened. So they really don't have much going for them beyond business as usual or even when they do start out with high ambitions they will often then revert to business as usual types in the building so the developers get in develop the thing they haven't got the same ambitions for the place they're just trying to build something that gives them the profit and they build the pattern that they know. So how do these visions for utopia end up being business as usual? Well to answer that We've got to follow the money, all the way to the top. New cities generally have CEOs, not elected mayors. Uh, they don't have elected city councils. They follow a completely corporate governance structure. And so we're looking at the privatization and corporatization of urban space on an unprecedented scale. Uh, and that has all sorts of implications about what rights residents have in these corporate private cities. I don't see any of these new cities as being that ecologically sustainable. I think they're not taking it, uh, you know, ecological sustainability that seriously. What they are taking seriously is attracting investment and providing investors with what they want. In my experience, the environment is completely deprioritized, as are the rights of landowners, like poor landowners. And those people who are citizens um, are, are being deprioritized over foreign investors. And what's more, it's all happening within the law. particularly the colonial imminent domain 
law, which still exists in former British colonies, um, where land can be confiscated for national priority projects. In Canada, Sarah's home country, these colonial-era laws were used to forcibly buy land from farmers when the country built its national railway. The same law is being used to uh, take land away from uh, farmers to create new cities. And these new cities are for the, for the wealthy. Um, and so we're creating scores and scores of landless peasants, which is you know, not addressing housing shortages. It's not addressing current inequality at all. As we've heard, many of these new cities are proposed as a solution to overpopulation in urban environments. But once these investor-driven cities are built, they might be too expensive for the people they were built for. I think a lot of the new cities have talked about um, creating affordable housing for the middle class or even the lower uh, socioeconomic brackets. Uh, And very few have been actually able to do this. Um, This costs money. This requires subsidies. It requires, uh, you know, designers to help figure out how to make affordable housing. And this just isn't being prioritized at this point. While in display rooms and in PowerPoint presentations, these cities pay lip service to the ideals of equality, in reality, they become like gated communities on a city scale. The cities are being designed to meet the needs of investors and the rich. And I think we're looking at a broader and broader gap between the haves and the have-nots, where a lot of the elites are abandoning existing cities and kind of uh, moving to new cities. Uh, And a lot of the regular people who are in desperate need of proper housing um, are getting kind of swept under the rug and and left out. And they're they're kind of being left out doubly. Um, They're unable to move and take part in these new cities. And existing cities are kind of being neglected as uh, states prefer to invest in these glamorous new urban spectacles rather than uh, in existing cities that are plagued with all sorts of problems. This could turn out to be the case for Jakarta. Indonesia will be moving its capital to a newly built city. They're still scouting for locations, but time is running out. Jakarta is sinking. And it's sinking faster than ever, due to decades of wealthier Indonesians boring holes to bypass the city's water grid. But when the time comes, they won't be the ones stuck there. Indonesia won't be the first country to build itself a brand new capital. Brazil built the futuristic Brasilia in the 1960s. But of course, there's an example much closer to home. When you're talking new cities, we've got Canberra and Brasilia as two new capitals as examples. And yeah, they're not thriving cities. We all know the story of Canberra. It's, it's doing quite comfortably. and But you've still got things like prime ministers who prefer to, to base themselves in Sydney and the economic activity hasn't moved with them. They're just administrative capitals. Why then do these new cities fail to take off? 
Karen says there's a reason behind the success of the world's great urban centres. It needs a human factor. It needs a reason to exist. And why did cities evolve in the places they did in the first place? They're on trading routes. They're on key defence positions. They've got access to water. They've got access to to the roads and the connections and the you know. There's when you look back in history, every city's got a reason for why it was placed where it was. And if you're just artificially creating one, what's its new reason to exist? Now, admittedly, in our new tech world. Some of that matters less, but you've still got to get water there. You've still got to generate energy. And unless there are really overriding strong reasons for it to, to have an economic basis and a social basis and a being connected to the places that it needs to be, I don't think it's going to have a reason to exist. Where cities once grew organically from strategic locations, today's new cities are placed where it will no doubt maximise value for investors on the waterfront. That's right. My estimation is about 30 to 35% of all new cities out of my data set of about 120 are being built either at sea level or in the sea on artificial land. Do they take into account, I wonder, sea level rise? Is there a certain irony there of these new cities going up in places that could be degraded by sea level rise very soon? This is a really good question. Are these cities creating more vulnerability in future populations? Absolutely. Um, I've asked in some of the new cities that are being built at sea level or you know, on artificial land uh, this very question, um, what about rising sea levels? And I've been told all sorts of answers like, oh, the sea level is rising in other countries, but not here. Or, um, you know, the sea can rise another meter and we'll still be fine. Uh, we've, we've thought of this. Or, or they just openly say, this isn't going to be a problem for us for another 100 years. So no need to worry at this point. So basically the money's being made now and it's uh, usually pretty short-sighted. These new cities might soon have water lapping at their door. The irony is there might not be anyone at home to notice. Sarah says these cities could become very lonely places. So a recent report from, I think, Bloomberg said that about 20% of all housing in China is empty. Uh, And that was a really shocking number for me. Uh, And it made sense with what I was observing in a lot of these new cities where the units would sell. um, And but it's becoming increasingly clear that these are investment vehicles. So a lot of these new cities I'm predicting are going to be ghost cities because the condo units will sell, but people won't actually move in. Uh, They're just sitting on them and holding them to resell them at some point in the future. The danger is because it's it can be a, a single-dimensional approach, a brand-new city. It needs to have lots of reasons for people to be there, to get some diversity there, diversity of activities, diversity of people, to make the richness that makes a city rather than just a business park. The danger is that they become soulless. 
and they don't have the diversity and the mix and the richness and the messiness that comes from real cities. Thanks for listening to Think Sustainability. This program is supported by the Institute for Sustainable Futures. Think Sustainability is recorded in the studios of 2SER, which sit on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, of which sovereignty was never ceded. I'm Daniel Butler. Till next time.